We hope you enjoy this episode of the Modern Divorce Podcast. But first, a message from our sponsor. At Modern Law, we don't believe in a one-size-fits-all solution, and we understand that some clients need full representation using every tool in the legal toolbox. This is especially true for custody and alcohol cases, which is why Soberlink has been one of the most important tools for my clients. Soberlink's remote alcohol monitoring tool has helped over 500,000 people prove their sobriety with peace and mind during their parenting time. To begin receiving real-time alerts that your child is safe and to receive $50 off your device, visit Soberlink.com forward slash modern. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Modern Divorce Podcast. I am your host, Billy Tarasio, owner of Modern Law and Win Without Law School. And today I am joined by a very special guest, Dr. Lisa Fontes, international domestic violence expert, professor, and an expert witness who frequently testifies in family court on issues related to domestic violence. Dr. Fontes, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Happy to have you here. So, Dr. Fontes, please tell us why someone would want a domestic violence expert to testify at their family court hearing. Absolutely. And I do want to say that I testify not just about domestic violence per se, but also about coercive control, which I'm sure we're going to talk about and the effects on children. A lot of times people feel like even their attorney is not taking seriously the experiences that they've had of domestic abuse and coercive control. Their attorney may not understand what it's about and therefore doesn't bring them to the fore in the case. Mm -hmm. But they feel that it's very important in their own history and it's very important that the judge understand what happened to them what is still happening to them, even after a separation, and what might happen to them into the future through post-separation abuse if it's not stopped. So a lot of times it, it takes an expert, somebody who's been qualified as an expert, to explain that, to explain the scholarship on domestic abuse and to explain how these cases will go if the abuser is not stopped. I, I, there are so many things that we could talk about. And I've known you for a while and I know I can vouch personally for just how wonderful you are and just how much information you have. But one of the things that you just mentioned, post-separation abuse, is something that plagues a lot of people after family court or once they've left and filed for divorce can we talk about that? Absolutely. I mean, even once divorces are granted and sometimes for 18 years following, post-separation abuse can be an issue. So a lot of people who are not that familiar with domestic abuse think, leave him. You know, speaking about the typical case where the abuser is male and the abused person is female, not always the case, but let's talk about that. That's more common. They'll just say, leave him and it'll be over. But of course, it's not over. And once a couple is separated, the abuser will often find many, many ways to continue to control the victim over time. So they control, can control them financially. If they're obligated to pay financial support, maybe they won't pay it. Maybe they'll take out debts in their ex's name without permission. Maybe they will sell property that is jointly owned. Maybe they will move money between accounts. And so it, it can take a forensic account to try to figure out where the money is, and they can't always find out where that is. 
Maybe they will file for 50-50 custody or in some states that's usually automatically granted if if just so they won't have to pay child support because they don't want to pay child support. So financial abuse is one form of post-separation abuse. Another form people call either litigation abuse or legal abuse. One judge even called it legal terrorism. Wow. Because it can be filing motion after motion after motion motion with the intention of obligating their victimized ex to come to court, to miss work, to have to arrange childcare, to go through all that stress, all the expense of having to pay an attorney to go to court for things that they know, they know the motions are false or frivolous. It's some people, some states, they call it frivolous litigation or vexatious litigation. And there are laws proposed, for instance, in my state of Massachusetts, there's a law proposed against that in domestic violence that recognize it as a form of domestic violence. There's post-separation abuse through the children. So turning the children against the other parent or using the children to spy on the other parent, trying to fracture the relationship between the victim and the child or the children through visitation, ruining the partner's reputation in their community or their place of worship, even in their family sometimes. So those are just a few of the forms of post-separation abuse, but it, it can be really devastating. I've worked with people whose exes threw stones at their house at night. Yeah. And you know, the police would come and there was no one there. Well, this went on for years. Even after he had remarried and had a new family, he was continuing continuing to periodically appear at her house and throw stones at it. It really is terrorism. It really is designed to just make someone feel helpless. To feel fear. Yeah, it is. So when you get involved in a case, how does that work? Usually, well, sometimes the attorney contacts me, usually sends me an email. I'm easy to find on the internet and says, I'm working with so-and-so in such and such a state and... They are at this stage of their process. So they may be separated. They may be divorced. They may be having a custody battle. They may be having some kind of court battle over finances, prenups, postnups. I've worked on a variety of cases, including criminal cases, actually, that involved trauma. And the attorney says, we think we need an expert. Or the person who's been victimized contacts me and similarly There's about five different ways that I can work with people, and I try to lay that all out in an email. And then if they want to have a first meeting, I've begun to charge for that because I otherwise I would literally spend all day doing nothing but that. But we have a meeting at which we decide, does it make sense to work work together? Mm -hmm. Am I the right person? Is this the right time? Is this the best thing for your case? Because it it isn't always. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe I can recommend somebody else who might be better. If we decide to go forward, then I'll begin to collect some of the, they'll begin to give me some of the evidence and I'll still have to see if it makes sense for me to work on the case. If I don't believe that there is domestic abuse or coercive control, I'll say, thank you very much. Let's not go any further. Okay. And does that happen? Do people ever try to hire you to prove that the other party is an abuser and you say, no, I'm not seeing it? Regularly. Yes, that does happen. 
And quite a few of those people are men who may have been abusing their ex. In other words, they have taken on the language of domestic abuse and coercive control and are trying to use that against their the person they victimized. Wow. And what do they, what are they usually claiming? It's not that I had so many of those. In the cases of, of men who I suspected might have been abusers, mm-hmm. um, one was claiming that the fact that the mother of the children was granted legal decision-making and had more time with the child was a form of coercive control. And as I looked into it, there just was nothing there. Mm -hmm. Um, Another was someone who had actually fled the country with his child. Mm -hmm. And when it took me a while to piece it together. And then once I did, I I said, no, I can't work on this one. Wow. But I've also had women come to me who I just, the story changed, not the way they often do in that a lot of times people initially minimize what's happened. Mm. They're in a certain amount of denial about it. That I understand. But this was a different kind of pattern. And I had to say, if you can actually produce the medical records documenting that, we can go forward. But if not, that's a very serious allegation. And there should have been documentation. and There wasn't. So I didn't feel comfortable going forward with that. So you're not just a hired gun. You're not just going to tell somebody what they want to hear. You are going to use your expertise to come to a scientific evaluation that you then share with the court. Exactly. And I will only take a case if, in my opinion, which is based on three decades of work in the field, there has been course of control or domestic abuse or other issues that I can give an opinion on. Do you ever meet with children? I don't. I don't. For the kind of work that I do, I don't need to do that. So I I don't meet with children. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a different role. Yeah. I, I wonder because I know that there are a lot of teenagers who sometimes are, who don't want to go visit one parent. And there's, there's been a lot of discussion lately about reunification camps, about forced reunification and I was just curious if that was ever a a situation where you would be involved. I might be involved in the situation, but not in the role of talking to the child. Mm-hmm. Uh, that could be done by, you know, different roles in different places, but custody evaluator, guardian ad litem, maybe a psych eval on the child. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would not be part of that. But I, for for a, a, a different kind of case, I might, you know, let's say a, a custody case where that might be part of it. Mm-hmm. I might, how much time the teen spends with the other parent, the, abu- the abusive parent, I might certainly look at reports from Child Protective Services, reports from the schools, concerns raised. Love it. All right. So let's talk for a minute about coercive control. It's a crime in some states, not in Arizona where I am, but can you define what is coercive control? Absolutely. So in most of the states that I've worked, there are coercive control is not yet in the laws. It will be. It will be part of the definition of domestic violence will be, coercive control will be included there as it is in Connecticut, Colorado, California, Hawaii, Oh, goodness, I'm forgetting on Washington State. There we go. And it, there's a proposal in quite a few other states. 
coercive control is a strategy that some people use to dominate their intimate partner. Some of the tactics that are included are isolation, intimidation, manipulation, could be physical abuse, sexual abuse, legal abuse, and financial abuse. Not all of those have to be present, Mm -hmm. but it's a strategy over time and there's more than one part of it. Mm -hmm. A lot of times when people say, oh, I was emotionally abused, Mm -hmm. what they really mean is coercive control. Because mm-hmm. emotional abuse is is part of course of control, but usually there's more. Mm-hmm. Maybe the abusive partner raised a stink every time they visited their family or saw friends, or they got so drunk that the person who's victimized started isolating themselves. And um, so that would be isolation that they may not even be aware of. Techn- technological abuse is also can definitely can be part of course of control, whether that's Um, tracking someone's movements, tracking their emails, their phone calls, their social media. Mm -hmm. So those are elements, of course, of control. And and the result is that the person who's being victimized lives a reduced life, less freedom, less freedom to associate with others, less ability to make decisions. Often they stop feeling like themselves. They feel like a shadow of themselves. Well, I have to tell you, Dr. Fontes, so many people by the time they get to me to get divorced have experienced the things that you're talking about. That's right. I mean, and they they may not have a name for it. And that's the beauty of the term course of control is it connects the dots Mm -hmm. among all these things that, you know, it's just that he's in a bad mood all the time, or it's just Mm -hmm. that she, you know, has a hard time seeing my family. But then when you put them all together, it's a whole universe of ways to control another person. Mm -hmm. And let's say we prove that, you know, we go to court, we prove that, let's say it's the dad was coercively controlling and controlled mom's movements and controlled what she spent. How does that usually impact a case? Well, it depends on what the case is about. If it's about custody, which it often is, then we have to make the connections for the judge between coercively controlling an intimate partner and harm to the child. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, there's some very good recent research on that demonstrates that living in a home with coercive control, even if there is no physical abuse, is harmful to children. And we also see that the same techniques that the abuser was using to control their partner, Mm -hmm. they eventually use with their children. Maybe not when their children are really little and all they want to do is please dad. But as the child gets older, they develop a mind of their own. They don't necessarily believe the same things dad believes. They don't necessarily want to do what he wants to do. Then those techniques are going to come into play. And so what do you ask the family court to do? Well, it's not necessarily my job to ask the family court to do anything, but I would talk about some of the things that have been helpful with people in the past. So for instance, even if there isn't a history of physical violence, it can be very helpful for someone who has used course of control to take part in a 26 to 52 week in-person batterer intervention program. Really? And and those groups are not, 
those groups that are well run are not just for men who've beaten their their wives or girlfriends. They understand the dynamics of coercive control that lie beneath the physical abuse. And so they will address those. And I say in person because the online programs don't have the same accountability. Right. And it's not anger management because domestic violence, domestic abuse, coercive control are not anger problems. They are problems of controlling the partner. Usually the person who coercively controls their partner can't control their anger. They don't usually lash out at the neighbors. They don't lash out at their bosses. They choose to lash out at their partner as a form of domination. I want to ask about this. This might be even dangerous to ask, but I've had I've had consultations with people who have had partners who had traumatic brain injuries or had post-traumatic stress disorder. And they would describe incidents of violence, but somehow they did not describe a relationship that felt like, and they did not feel like they were in a pattern of dominating, controlling behavior, but they were instead with someone who who seemed to have an anger problem. Is that real? Well, I guess what I would ask, one of the things I would ask was, is that person having outbursts all over the place? Yeah. So if somebody has a traumatic brain injury that interferes with their ability to control their emotions, Mm -hmm. you'd see it at the supermarket, you'd see it when they're driving on the highway, you'd see it at the workplace, you'd see Mm -hmm. it with their parents, you know, it wouldn't simply be directed at their partner. If it's, if it's really only at home, then there's a certain amount of choice in there. But honestly, even if it is a traumatic brain injury, you know, the person has a right to decide not to stay with someone who is abusive towards them. Right. And it doesn't make them any less dangerous to their children. It probably makes them more dangerous. That's right. Well, th- thank you for bringing up the effect on the kids because it, it kids, you know, they, a lot of people think, oh, their kids don't really know what's going on, but kid, kids sense they are, they, they really do sense. And research has shown that even in couples where there's physical violence and both Members of the couple believe the children don't know, the children know. Mm. Couples will say, oh, we only fight after the kids are in bed, or we only go into the garage to fight or the basement. The kids know, they feel the fear. They see, you know, the hole in the wall that was punched. They see one person acquiescing to the other and acting timid, and they know. The other thing I want to ask you about is so many times judges will say, well, it's a case of he said, she said, we can't figure out who's lying. You are an international expert in interviewing. You can tell who is lying. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I don't have a magic wand to tell who's lying, okay? (laughs) And no one does. The FBI doesn't. You know, no one does, okay? So I need to say that first. But there are some indicators about whether people are being truthful or not that I look for. And and yes, I have written a book on interviewing and taught interviewing across the country for forensic contexts. You look for, I look for the attitude of the person who's telling the story by, I shouldn't say story, by the person who's telling their story, mm-hmm. by the person who's telling what happened to them. So do they seem vengeful? Do they seem vindictive? 
does it escalate? The person I described earlier to you who I, I backed out of the case, it was because that the charges kept, it kept escalating. It didn't, it wasn't consistent. So you look for a certain amount of consistency. There are certain attitudes as people tell their stories, which are very typical. Um, I actually, I don't even want to tell, tell them all because I want to be able to continue to use them, <laughs> yeah. but I am able to tell to a judge, these are the reasons that I believe this person, or these are the reasons that I don't. Mm-hmm. So if someone is being falsely accused of something, how would you recommend they go about proving their innocence? Well, it's, it really is a, a question of evidence. Mm-hmm. So you will see situations where a 120-pound woman mm-hmm. who has been in the hospital, who has been in the emergency room for multiple injuries to herself, that she at the time said she fell down the stairs, she was running, whatever. But then once she separates from the abuser, says those were all injuries that were domestic violence. And the 190 pound husband is claiming that she was violent against him because he took one video of her yelling Mm -hmm. at him and cursing at him. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... You know, sometimes I'll just ask the judges, you know, let's, let's look at this, you know, let's look at the evidence that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it really is a question of, of looking at the evidence and, you know, there isn't always great evidence. Right. There isn't always great evidence. So sometimes somebody is making something up about you and it can be very hard to prove, to disprove a negative. It can be, right? So you just have to weigh what evidence is there, hospital records, police records, diaries kept at the time, emails, people they spoke to at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I encourage people to keep photographs. And I encourage people to report assaults to the police. You can look at the record of the of the two people. Does either of them have a criminal record? Mm-hmm. Does either of them have a cri- history of abuse? Mm-hmm. Or of assaults. Mm-hmm. What is their substance abuse pattern? Does that come up frequently? It does come up frequently, yes. And being cured of alcoholism, let's say, not cured, but somebody in their alcoholism and control under control will not necessarily make them stop being abusive. Plenty of people are alcoholic and are not abusive, mm-hmm. and plenty of people are abusive and are not and don't abuse alcohol. Mm -hmm. So the two often go together, Mm -hmm. alcohol or drugs and Mm -hmm. domestic abuse, but they need to be addressed as separate problems. Mm -hmm. That's interesting that you say that. I don't have a ton of experience with this, but, but one specific case I worked on, a father was physically abusive to a little boy and was an alcoholic. And one of the things that we got court ordered was that the father used Soberlink and not drink during parenting time. And that seemed to, well, there were no other incidents of physical abuse after that. I don't think it cured him as a parent or fixed the the child's relationship with the dad, but it certainly made him more safe. Is there any evidence 
surrounding that type of fact pattern that would suggest that is or isn't a good idea? Oh, it's absolutely a good idea. I mean, people are disinhibited when they're using drugs or using alcohol. And so if they have that sort of tendency, then it's more likely to come out because they're not able to stop themselves. So that doesn't surprise me what you're saying. And I'm glad to hear it worked. Yeah, I'm glad to hear it worked too. Or, Or it made a difference. It did for that little boy, but I'm wondering, you know, if it happens again, is it is it a bad idea or is it, should we as family law attorneys be encouraging something like, you know, no drinking and the use of Soberlink and then allowing parenting time if someone's been abusive under the influence? Because it's very difficult to get a judge to order no parenting time or even supervised parenting time. I think that that this Soberlink can be helpful. Mm-hmm. Um but I would still recommend, even for somebody who's only abusive uh, when they're drunk or mm-hmm. when they're high, I would still recommend a batterer intervention program because mm-hmm. they need to address the underlying belief that it's okay mm-hmm. um, to dominate or it's natural to try to dominate their partner to that degree. Mm-hmm. Got it. So the the batterer intervention program is really about the psychological dismantling of the patriarchal belief that allows you to justify your behavior. Correct. And and to and to deny its importance or or even deny, you know, to blame it on the other person. Oh, you made me do this because you said this or you went there or you smiled at the grocery attendant or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so projecting it out on the partner rather than saying it's my job mm-hmm. to control my how I behave. Mm-hmm. And you know, men who successfully complete these programs are often really transformed. And the, and the longer the programs are, the more successful they are. And some programs will have people come back, you know, as sort of alums after their initial time through it. And a lot of times men don't want to give that up because there's a real feeling of community there. That's exciting. It's exciting to know that there is a treatment, that it is effective, because many, many people are stuck co-parenting with their, you know, former partner for a long time. So it's good to know that there is treatment that works. I'm sure it only works if they want it to work. Right. It works some of the time. I mean, some abusers drop out. They can't complete it. It's too rigorous. Mm. And others, you know, complete it, but don't really change. So it's not a guarantee, but it it does seem to be the best tool that we have right now. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about a typical engagement. You said that people will do an initial interview, then they'll get you documents. What happens next when people are working with you? So it really depends on where they are, but let's say the best way for me to work is that they have a collection of of their documents, the most important things, police report, medical reports, legal filings, if there have been depositions from both sides, if there are abusive texts, voicemails, videos, I don't want to see a hundred of them. It's really traumatic for me to listen to those and to see those. So I want to see a selection of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And if there's some app like Talking Parents or Our Family Wizard that has also abusive talk, then I would like to see a, you know, a printout of that. They've gathered those together. I have a controlling relationship assessment form that I give people and ask them to fill out. And it asks about 
course of control in all different kinds of areas. So there may be things that people have not thought about. And it helps me, it helps guide my interview with them because I, I won't, I would just want to skip anything. And then I'll see, you know, people will say, yeah, there was this, but no, there was none of that. And that's fine. Or they'll say, well, I'm not sure. A lot of times people, women will say, I'm not sure if I was sexually abused in this relationship. And so then I know, well, that's an area that we we are probably going to touch on. And I ask them to fill out a timeline. A lot of times they've already filled out a timeline with their attorney and that's great, but I might have a few questions on mine that the attorney hasn't asked. Like, what did you weigh and what was your height? during the relationship and what was your, the abuser's weight and height during a relationship. And, and so I gather those materials, I begin to get a picture from those, and then we'll, I'll have an interview of maybe an hour and a half or so by Zoom. Some people's less, some people's a little more. And that will be, I'll be asking about the areas that it seemed like they had, they had more to say. I've, you know, this might not work for everybody. I mean, I have been with people who've said, I don't want to fill out any forms. I just want you to interview me. And I just don't have enough hours in the day to do that. That's why I developed the form. But then other people, they find it to be very helpful to fill out the form. It's like when you go to the doctor and they ask you about every single aspect of your physical body and you say, oh, finally, somebody's trying to get to understand who I really am. And it's a very thorough, I mean, I'm getting in pretty close with people and their experiences. And sometimes often people tell me about experiences they've never told anyone before. And it's an honor and a privilege and I take it very seriously. I take their privacy and their confidentiality and their feelings very seriously. And I, I put it all together. I look for inconsistencies. If there's inconsistencies, I ask about them. Mm-hmm. Well, you said this, but the neighbor's affidavit said that. Can you explain that? And sometimes I th- see things that people don't see themselves. Um, and then I write a report. And sometimes they're short, sometimes they're long. So they could be seven pages, could be 20, 25. I incorporate literature from the field, scholarly work. And then the I submit it. And sometimes that encourages the other side to settle. And mm-hmm. sometimes we go to trial. I might get deposed before trial. Maybe yes, maybe no. And then testify. And my job and my and my job is really, you know, not to be on anybody's side. It's to inform the court. Um, so in this report, are you reporting the story? Are you reporting your findings? Is it a conclusory report or kind of an informative report? I'm not really familiar with those terms, but I do reach conclusions about whether I believe there has been coercive control, domestic abuse, post-separation abuse, best interests of the children. I have to be careful how I talk about that because it may not be my role depending on the state, but I can talk about some of the possible risks to children of, of coercive control. The reports are very specific, so they're, they do talk about the field. But they also talk about the, the the particulars of this couple. 
or this family. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, I have found your work to be incredibly thorough, persuasive, and really helpful. I was talking to a client of mine who used you, and she just was telling me how personally transformative it was for her to work with you. You know, regardless of the impact that it had on her case, she learned so much about herself and it really helped her process her experience to work with you. I I do hear that from people. It, what I do is not therapy by any means, but some people do find it very therapeutic. I got, I got a note from somebody today. Is it, you want, is it okay if I read it? I, she gave me permission. I would love that. Okay. So dear Lisa, thank you so much for your expertise, your report and testimony. Your involvement has greatly impacted the way my case is being understood by the legal system. The truth of my experience being coercively controlled is finally being told. And she gave me permission to read that. I testified last week for her in her case. And she in the in the initial proceedings in the case, she felt like the, the judge was not taking seriously everything that had been done to her and adding my voice shifted the conversation. That's wonderful. That's just wonderful because so many victims are told, you know, your story doesn't matter or we don't believe you or we don't want to hear it. And so I'm so happy that you were able to give people a voice and say it in a way that makes the family court listen. And that's really, I think, what you do is you take, you know, stories and you make them relevant to the family court case where otherwise a judge might not care to listen. Right. And judges will often say, and it's a mistake, they'll often say, oh, I don't care what happened between the couple. I'm only here making a decision about the kids. As if the person who abuses their partner is not the same person who's in the room with the kids. They're the same person, the same characteristics, the same habits, the same personality. So um, thank you. I've enjoyed working with you, Billy. Well, Dr. Fontes, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, There are literally so many topics that we could cover, but we're out of time for today. If you all have enjoyed this episode, make sure you download it, like it, share it, rate it. Dr. Fontes does work with clients, although she doesn't have a ton of room. We'll make sure to link to your website so that people can get a hold of you. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Bye. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Modern Divorce Podcast, brought to you by Modern Law. Now, a word from our sponsor. One consistent theme you'll hear from me, Billy Tarasio, is that we do not believe in a one-size-fits-all solution. That's why at Modern Law, you can find anything you need for your family law case. For the highest stakes litigation cases, we've got experienced family law attorneys who can offer you representation. We also have embraced newly licensed legal paraprofessionals who can offer you legal representation for less. And if you just need your documents prepared, we can offer certified legal document preparers as well. If that's not for you and instead you are representing yourself, congratulations. You are like one of the 70% of people out there doing it on your own and our newest offering, Win Without Law School can help. For more information about Win Without Law School, go to winwithoutlawschool.com. To get representation options, go to mymodernlaw.com.